0: So then, uh, our study this evening concerns the greatest ever event to occur in the history of mankind. And I'm sure you would agree, this event has forever changed the course of history and the destiny of this world more than any other event. And it was, of course, announced, as we know, by those words, He is risen. The life of our Lord to this point, including His sacrificial death on the cross, has laid the basis for the resurrection and victory over the law of sin and death, which had no more dominion over him. However, this was not done in himself for himself alone. It was achieved in him, brothers and sisters and young people, by the power of God for us. And I'd like you to come with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And our study is going to be a bit of a workshop, so I want... Uh, I want you to benefit from it as much as possible. And for that reason, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 and just consider this prayer that the Apostle Paul gave for our brethren in Ephesus. And commencing at verse 16, where he says that he ceased not to give thanks for his brethren, making mention of them in his prayers. And this is his prayer on their behalf, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the father of glory may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Now I want you to remember that expression, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, because we're going to see this in John the apostle, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. Now this exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, brothers and sisters, is the power which wrought mightily in raising our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might. So that power, brothers and sisters, that raised our Lord from the dead is the same power that works in our life. And that word power, as you know, the Greek word dynamis, we get our English words dynamic, dynamo, dynamite from this word. It's explosive power, brothers and sisters and young people an explosive power that is transformational because it brought life out of death but not just life out of death brothers and sisters it performed the greatest transformation that is known to man and there is no greater transformation than the transformation of mortal to immortal that's the that's the result of that transforming power that operated in our lord jesus christ paul said that same power is at work in your lives. And I want your, your eyes, the eyes of your understanding, to be enlightened, to see that same explosive transformational power at work in your lives, to change your mind, to change your life, and to change your destiny. Because it can break through every known barrier and limitation that exists on earth, even death itself. And that is precisely the purpose objective of our study tonight because looking at the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and of course we can't be comprehensive it is a massive story we're going to just focus in on the linen clothes just themselves but this this is the story brothers and sisters of he who was the first fruits of them that slept because there's going to be fruits afterwards Paul tells us that as we know in first Corinthians 15 every man in his own order Christ, the first fruits, the first one to transcend from mortal to immortal. Afterwards, they that are Christ's at his coming. And that coming is very near. But on this subject, as we know, brothers and sisters and young people, there have been many doubters and sceptics over the centuries. The Greeks in Athens, my own relatives, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead in Acts 17, as we know, they mocked and others said, Uh, Let's make another time, Paul. We can talk about this another day. And Paul said to King King Agrippa in his defense, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? When you think about it, resurrection is an integral part of the creation. It is a fixed law of nature. And we see resurrection in many, many different ways. And resurrection that we observe in nature, brothers and sisters, all has something in common. And that is that it's not just a single event. It is a process that goes through a number of stages. Each night, the sun goes down, and it's buried beneath the earth's horizon. And it ceases to illuminate and warm the earth, and darkness covers the land. And then every morning, the sun rises anew, and a new day dawns. Each night we go to sleep in semi-consciousness and then we rise in the morning. We see the resurrection in the morning dew. Isaiah in his 26th chapter and verse 19 said, Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs and the earth shall cast out the dead. Each autumn, The deciduous flora ages and then dies and rests dormant in the lifeless, grey, cold winter. And then it springs back to life in the warmth, colour and fragrance of spring. Every seed that a farmer plants has to die and be buried in the earth before it can shoot forth into life and bear fruit. We see it, brothers and sisters. We've got evidence of it. The ugly earthbound caterpillar that dies and is buried and dissolves away in its cocoon, transforms into a beautiful butterfly by the process of metamorphosis. And considering the theme of our Bible school, the hope of Israel, the entire world has seen no less a miraculous resurrection of Ezekiel's 37th chapter and the resurrection of that nation who was seen by Ezekiel the prophet as a valley of dry bones. After nearly 2,000 years of death and non-existence, nationally and spiritually speaking, just come to Ezekiel 37. This is a story of resurrection, brothers and sisters, and it's played out on the world scene for everyone to see. And we know this chapter well, chapters 37, 38, and 39, because we're living in the time period of the fulfillment of these prophecies. And we know in verse 3 of Ezekiel 37, Yahweh says to Ezekiel, son of man, Can these bones live? Jesus Christ is about to return. Look at verse 21. Say unto them is the prophecy, saith Adonai Yahweh, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, from among the Gentile nations, whither they be gone, and I will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Brothers and sisters, if the resurrection of Israel were a play, and it isn't a play, but just bear with me using this allegory, if it were a play... The land of Israel is the stage and the world is the audience. And God has made sure that they are all watching because Israeli news has made international headlines ever since Israel's miraculous deliverance from Egypt, which was reported in the Jericho Daily, 450 kilometers away. And the director and leading actor is our Lord Jesus Christ. The performance has already commenced. It's already started. And we have also been recruited to be involved. We've been given the script, and soon we're going to be taken to Sinai to be briefed and trained on our involvement in the final scenes of this resurrection story. Of course, as we know, we're not called because we can act. There are too many actors in the world. We've been chosen because we are living the part of the character that we will be, that is the, the, the rainbowed angel of the future age. But my point is, this play of the resurrection of Israel has actually well and truly commenced and is well and truly in progress. Theodore Herzl was the leading character in, in scene one with the dream of the Zionist movement in the late 19th century. The British and her allies fulfilled their roles in the pouring out of the sixth vial in Revelation 16 over the river Euphrates, pushing the Ottoman Turkish Empire out of Palestine and the liberation of Jerusalem in World War I to make way for the kings of the, of the east. This is the resurrection of Israel. It's already happening. The Lord James Balfour issued the Balfour Declaration in in 1917, and the the British performed their role in having a mandate over Palestine and facilitating the emigration of the Jews back to the land. The victors of World War I issued the San Remo Resolution of 1920. Jewish emigration continued during the period of the Fishers, And we know the outcome of the period of the Hunters in World War II. These events engulf the whole world, brothers and sisters. We know the United Nations Resolution of 1947, the Proclamation of the State of Israel in 1948, the Six-Day War in Jerusalem back into Jewish hands, 1967. And in recent months, what have we seen, brothers and sisters? We've seen the moves for the annexation of the West Bank by Israel. Just as Ezekiel had said, I'm going to make them one nation on the mountains of Israel, the Judean and Sumerian mountains. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection of Israel is in progress. But as we know, Israel had lost hope. We read of that in verse 11. Behold, they say, our hope is lost and we are cut off for our parts. All hope was not lost, brothers and sisters. The hope of Israel is a certain and sure hope, and we can see it full, being fulfilled with our very eyes. Not only that, you and I know, those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ and who are preparing for our role in this, in this play, we know, brothers and sisters, that our resurrection, our resurrection from mortal to immortal, is an integral part of, of the fulfillment of the resurrection of, Nash, uh, of natural Israel. And so in verse 12 to 14, Ezekiel was to prophesy. Thus saith Adonai Yahweh, behold, O my people, I will open your graves, and I will cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that that I am Yahweh when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves. And I'm going to put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall ye know that I, Yahweh, have spoken it and performed it, saith Yahweh. And we know that day is still to come. Because at the end, brothers and sisters, Ezekiel says in verse 26, Yahweh uh, through Ezekiel says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. That's the future, brothers and sisters. My tabernacle also shall be with them, yea, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the nations, all of the nations that have been watching this amazing, uh, fulfilling uh, prophecy, I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. If we ever doubted resurrection, brothers and sisters, behold the evidence because it's everywhere. If we're a doubting Thomas, remember the words that Jesus said to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold, Thomas. And we need to do the same, brothers and sisters. We need to reach hither our finger and we need to turn the pages of this word which was made flesh and touch the evidence imprinted on every page, a display of divine, miraculous, superhuman, explosive and transformational power and behold and believe. Because that's the experience of John. And let's come to John chapter 20 and see the apostle John behold and believe. Now, you know this story very well. So we're only going to just pick out a few selected parts of of this uh, this record in John chapter 20 as we look at the significance of the linen clothes. So we know that uh, Mary had come to the sepulchre. Uh, Finding the stone rolled away, she came back and alerted Peter and John. They run to the sepulchre. And we see from verse 5, John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes line, but he didn't go in. Now, if you're taking notes, which I hope you are, the word saw in verse 5, the word seeth in verse 6, and the word um, saw in verse 8 are three different Greek words, and it's important that we understand the difference. So John, in verse 5, saw, the Greek word is vlepo, which means just to take a glance, a single look. That's all. The word seeth that's spoken of Peter in verse 6 when he went into the sepulchre and seeth the linen clothes lie, that's an interesting Greek word. The Greek word theoreo, from which we get our English word theory. It means to carefully observe and analyze every detail. And it's uh, it's obvious because Peter describes, or John's record describes what Peter saw in great detail. But of note is the word saw in verse 8, because after Peter had carefully examined all of the evidence, John goes into the sepulcher and he saw and believed. That is, he believed that Jesus was risen, which Peter had not uh, yet done. Now, that word saw, is a word which I asked you to remember in that expression from Ephesians chapter 1. It's the word eethon, which means to see with understanding. Remember, Paul prayed that the Ephesian brethren and sisters might have eyes of understanding that were opened because the power of God is going to operate on those that believe. Now, here's the question. What did Peter carefully observe? So he observed the linen clothes lying in verse 6. And the napkin in verse 7 that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. He's a good detective, is Peter. He examines carefully all of the evidence, and there it is, all recorded for us in great detail. But John comes to belief and not Peter. And it's interesting because uh, John saw with different eyes to Peter, even though Peter carefully examined the detail. Now just so that we know we're familiar with the uh, words that are used here concerning the linen clothes the word napkin is the uh, the Greek word soudarion it refers to a towel sized cloth that was used as a laborer's sweat cloth it was worn as a headdress and it was also used to wrap the head only the head in burial the linen clothes the word in the greek for the linen clothes is orthonion and these were strips of cloth that were round, wound around the body And if we look at John 19, verse 39 to 14, we know that they were saturated in myrrh and aloes or aloe vera, so they were stuck together just like a spun cocoon. And the word lying there that's used in verse 7 of the linen clothes lying is the Greek word kimena, which is used of a person falling in, in sleep or death. And so the linen clothes all stuck together appeared as though They were an empty shell of a body that was either dead or asleep on that slab. And I believe um, that this is a picture of the process of metamorphosis of our Lord Jesus Christ being raised using that beautiful figure that we see in in nature. And of course, we know in Psalm 22 and verse 6, in that Messianic Psalm, our Lord said, I'm a worm and no man. And it's of great interest to us that that crimson grub which was used to produce scarlet dye becomes a figure of our Lord Jesus Christ who died in that state and came forth as as a butterfly, free from gravity and able to uh, lift off from the earth. But we're given particular details, of course, of the napkin in verse 7, that the napkin that was about his head was not lying with the linen clothes, but it was wrapped together in a place by itself very significant language and this was enough when John went in and saw to come to the point of belief and then John adds in verse um, 9 to that point they did not understand from the scripture that he must rise from the dead but John believed when he saw what Peter saw and the question now we want to ask ourselves is what was it that made John believe. And we're going to go on a journey tonight in a workshop of the scriptures and see if we can come to the belief that John came to as a result of that description given to us in those verses. And we're going to uh, do what the Lord uh, told Thomas to do. We're going to take our finger, we're going to turn up the pages of the scriptures and we're going to read carefully the scriptures and investigate this uh, as, as John did with the eyes of understanding. And the first place we're going to come to is John chapter 11. Because John, of course, as we know, recorded two resurrections in very similar detail. And the record of John 11 is the record of the raising of Lazarus. There's a key verse here in John chapter 11, in verse 18, which we could miss if we weren't carefully reading, which says now... Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. So John wants us to understand that Bethany and Jerusalem were close together because in Bethany and in Jerusalem, a beloved son died after a period of four days. We know Jesus waited four days. It just happens to be that Jesus was four days in Jerusalem before his death. In Bethany and in Jerusalem, a beloved son was buried in a sepulchre and a stone was rolled to its door. In Bethany and in Jerusalem, a Mary was found weeping at the sepulchre. And in Bethany and in Jerusalem, a stone was rolled away and a beloved son was resurrected back to life. And in Bethany and in Jerusalem, the Jews sought to conceal the evidence of resurrection. And from verses 32... Uh, through to verse 44, brothers and sisters, which we're not going to deal with now, we have an incredible thing. Because here the father orchestrated an amazing opportunity for his son whom he loved and enabled his son to walk through the experience of his own resurrection ahead of time from the perspective of his father. And actually anticipate all those things that would happen to him as they happened to Lazarus. And the similarities in the record are just so many. However, there are also some contrasts and they are significant and telling. But as the Lord's mind swung backwards and forwards from Bethany to Jerusalem, as he awaited his own personal circumstances, he was overcome with emotion. And he broke into tears, brothers and sisters. And we come to verse 44. Our Lord, having cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Here he is standing in his father's place, raising a beloved friend as the father would raise his beloved son. And he that was dead, verse 44, came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin, exactly the same word as John chapter 20. And Jesus said unto them, loose him and let him go. So here, brothers and sisters and young people, we have some contrasts as well as some similarities. Lazarus comes out of the sepulcher still bound in the grave clothes of mortality. Lazarus had to be loosed by his family. He could not loose himself. Lazarus was loosed from the grave clothes and the napkin together. Our Lord, by contrast, was raised to immortality. Our Lord did not come out of the sepulchre wearing the grave clothes of mortality. They were left in the sepulchre. He came out dressed in a change of raiment. It's John also who records the words that Jesus spoke to the Jews in John chapter 2 and verse 19. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And John continues to say, when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. You destroy this temple, he said, and in three days I will raise it up. So the Lord was involved in, in his own resurrection. It's John also who records the words of John 10 and verse 18, where the Lord said, I have power or the right to lay down my life, And I have the power to take it again. This commandment have I received from my father. And as the Lord breathed out voluntarily his last breath and gave up his life, so he cooperated in his own resurrection. And the grave clothes of the Lord and the napkin about his head were removed and positioned separately, the napkin not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped up together in a place by itself. So the contrasts of Lazarus who was raised back to his mortal state to die again is contrasted to our lord who was raised to immortality having been raised mortal as we will be he was subsequently granted divine nature and was raised from mortal to immortal that's what made him the first fruits of them that sleep now i'd like you to come with me to isaiah chapter 61 What makes this chapter familiar to us is the proclamation of liberty in Isaiah 61 and the first verse and part of verse 2, which, of course, we know the Lord read in the synagogue in Nazareth. Words, of course, that were spoken of him. Now we read that the spirit of Adonai Yahweh is upon me, read our Lord Jesus Christ, because Yahweh hath anointed me to preach good tidings. And what were the good tidings that he was sent to preach? What was the gospel message? We sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Why were there brokenhearted? Well, the answer to those two questions is because our Lord Jesus Christ was going to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound, and to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh. And if you've got a center margin, you'll see that your margin takes you against that expression to proclaim liberty to the captives and against that expression to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh takes you back to Leviticus 25 and to the record of the year of Jubilee. But this message that the Lord was going to preach was only to the meek. All the world were in captivity to the law of sin and death. All of them were in need of the proclamation of the acceptable year of Yahweh, but there were only a few teachable meek who would be prepared to accept that liberty, even though it was proclaimed to all. And that's why he was sent to the meek to preach this good news. But this verse is not the only verse in Isaiah 61, which has that personal pronoun, which is the spirit of Christ in Isaiah, that were the words written for our Lord Jesus Christ. There's another verse and it's verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. I'm sure you would all agree that those were equally the spirit of Christ in Isaiah. And, of course, we're in good company because Brethren Roberts and Walker in the book Ministry of the Prophets say so as well. And those two scriptures in Isaiah 61 are related. And the theme of the bridegroom redeeming his bride goes into chapter 62, as we know, because Zion and New Jerusalem is the bride that is going to be married to the Redeemer. And it's a beautiful section in Isaiah's prophecy. And if you just have a look at verse 10, that word, as a bridegroom, decketh, you'll see in the margin, the Hebrew for the word decketh is decketh as a priest. So this bridegroom who's going to redeem his bride, Zion or New Jerusalem, he's also a priest as well as a bridegroom. And the result of his redeeming and atoning work is going to produce resurrection globally. And we read of that in verse 11. For as the earth bringeth forth her bud, that's the process of resurrection as we know, we see it in nature. And as the garden that causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, and you would recognize this language the Apostle Paul uses in his his monumental chapter on resurrection, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So shall Adonai Yahweh cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. And this is a prophecy of the resurrection of the saints after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Brother Roberts and Brother Walker in the Ministry of the Prophets also expound that verse in that way. Because our Lord Jesus Christ was sown and sprung forth in a garden, as we'll see from John's record. He was the first fruits. he was the garden. He was the one who in the garden, was sown and sprung forth. and those that are Christ at his coming are described as the righteousness and praise who would spring forth before all the nations. And the righteousness and the praise is outlined in chapter sixty two because in chapter sixty two and verse two, the Gentiles will see thy righteousness. That's the righteousness of New Jerusalem. That's, that's the bride of Christ that the Gentiles will see. That will spring forth before all the nations. And in verse, uh, verse 7, New Jerusalem will be a praise in the earth. That's the righteousness and praise of the saints, of the bride of Christ, of Zion, of New Jerusalem, that will spring forth before all nations as a result of the work of the bridegroom and the great high priest. So let's come back to Leviticus 25 and see why Isaiah, the words spoken of our Lord Jesus Christ, are linked to the, the year of Jubilee, Leviticus 25. Now the year of Jubilee was a year that was much anticipated for a particular class of Israelites. Those who were forced because of some failure that they had experienced to temporarily have to give up their inheritance and their freedom. And so they had to sell their property and they had to become slaves or servants rather to their brethren for a period of time because of the circumstances that had befallen them, unfortunate circumstances. And so we, we read in verse um, 23 to 34 that property could be sold uh, so that it could uh, provide for the sustenance of a person who had come into poverty. And uh, persons are referred to in verse 47 to 55. A person uh, could go and work for his brother and be a servant to him until, of course, the year of Jubilee. So they were, they were the unfortunate circumstances that were consequences of some failure that encompassed an Israelite. And so for them, the year of Jubilee was the, the, the year that they would be released and they could go back to their inheritance and go back to their family. And we read of that from verse 8 of Levit- Leviticus chapter 25. Thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven, and we know seven is the number of the covenant. And the space of seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years. And that commences the 50th year. And uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, that's how we count years um, in, in the Greek culture. I'm 55, but when I say my age, I say that I'm in my 56th year, like we, uh, well, like we number the centuries. So at the end of 49 years, the 50th year commences, and that was the year of Jubilee. And thou shalt cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on not any day, On the 10th day of the 7th month, in the Day of Atonement, shall you make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. So in the Jubilee year, when it came to the the 10th day of the 7th month, the Day of Atonement, that's when the Jubilee trumpet, the shofar trumpet sounded. And they were to hallow the 50th year, verse 10, and proclaim liberty. That's the proclamation of Isaiah 61. Liberty. Liberty to the captives throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. And it will be a jubilee unto you. And those that had had to sell their land will return every man to his possession, that eternal inheritance that God had given them as a possession. And those that had been sold to work as servants to their brethren, ye shall return every man to his family. And you can imagine therefore why They desperately waited for the trumpet to sound in the Jubilee year because they could go back to their family and go back to their inheritance, which they had lost. And this, brothers and sisters, is an allegory of all humanity because from the day that man failed and sin entered into the world, man was driven from his inheritance and he lost his inheritance from the Garden of Eden and from the presence of Yahweh and man became enslaved and captive to the law of sin and death And this is the proclamation of liberty that Christ came to proclaim, to restore our freedom and our liberty from the law of sin and death and to restore our eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God. But only on the day of atonement in the year of Jubilee. And when that trumpet blasted, brothers and sisters, it signaled liberty. And we know that the trumpet blast is associated with the resurrection of the dead, Because in the ultimate sense, when we are raised to immortality, that's when we're ultimately and forever going to be free and liberated from the law of sin and death. So while we're in Leviticus, let's just come back to Leviticus chapter 16 and see why the Day of Atonement and the Jubilee year were connected together. Now, if we think about uh, the Day of Atonement, we would understand that both the day of atonement and the year of jubilee speak of liberty. The year of jubilee, liberty from the consequences of failure that led to a loss of inheritance and a loss of freedom. And the day of atonement, liberty from the guilt of failure that had led to that loss of inheritance and loss of freedom. But look at the curious detail that we are given in Leviticus 16 and the means by which Christ would proclaim Liberty. He's a high priest in this chapter. As we know, Aaron is the high priest at the time. And we read in verse two that Aaron who cannot come at all times into the holy place within the veil. So we understand by that, that we're talking about the most holy place beyond the veil, uh, which is before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark that he die not. So Aaron on the day of atonement, one day of every year, is going to come into the most holy place. Where is the mercy seat and where is the ark? Now, in verse 4, he's dressed in a holy linen coat and he has linen breeches upon his flesh. He's girded with a linen girdle and with a linen mitre will he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore, he shall wash his flesh in water and so put them on. So he's dressed in linen. And in addition to the ram and the bullock, in verse 5, Aaron is going to take two kids of the goats. One's going to be slain and one's going to be spared and and, and um, sent away alive. And we know in verse 9 that we have the goat of the sin offering that's going to be sacrificed. And in verse 10, we have the, the scapegoat who's going to be presented alive before Yahweh to make an atonement for the nation. And verse 15 and 16 outlines the sacrifice of the goat of the sin offering. And in verse 21 and 22, we're given significant detail concerning the scapegoat, the living goat. And we read in verse uh, 20, when he has made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he's going to bring the live goat. And Aaron, verse 21, shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions in all their sins. And he's going to put them on the head of the living goat and send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. So if ever, brothers and sisters, we felt overwhelmed by the guilt of our transgressions and we wondered of the extent of the mercy of Yahweh to forgive our sins, he doesn't forgive our sins 80% or 85% or 90% or 95% or 99%. We need to hide, brothers and sisters, because the mercy of our father, Is going to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. All their transgressions and all their sins, that's what the Day of Atonement was, brothers and sisters, a day when they were liberated from all their sins and made righteous before Yahweh, perfectly justified. And we are taught that by virtue of those two goats, one which represented the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and one which represented the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, that atonement was achieved by both sacrifice and resurrection and that it was the, re- the risen uh, goat that was going to take away all their transgressions and remove them far from them as far as east is from west. Because the Apostle Paul said, In Romans chapter four, verse 24 and 25, our Lord was delivered for our offenses, but was raised again for our justification, that is, for our righteousness, to be made righteous. And then we read in verse 23, that Aaron will come into the tabernacle of the congregation and note this, he's going to take off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the Holy place. So on the day of atonement, when he officiated the sacrifices, he was dressed in linen and it was the linen garments that were soiled with the labor of sacrifice and stained by the blood of sacrifice. And those linen clothes were not just put into the um, washing basket. They were left in the most holy place. They were left there. And he comes out in verse 24, while well, the nation afflicted their souls in contrition and in repentance and in remorse and in self-examination. He comes out to them dressed in his garments. That is the garments of glory and beauty referred to in Exodus 28 and verse 2. He comes out with a change of garments to proclaim liberty. They were free from sin. They were atoned for and they were righteous in God's eyes. And could it be, brothers and sisters, that the changing of garments represented the same as the two goats? That the changing of the linen garments, the garments of glory and beauty, designated that the high priest, having sacrificed and having left the linen clothes in the sepulchre, in the most holy place, dressed now in the garments of salvation, in the robe of righteousness, was the one that was going to make that proclamation of liberty. Well, we can be sure about the goats, but if we want to be really sure about the changing of the garments of the high priest, we need to come to Zechariah chapter three and the vision that Zechariah saw concerning Joshua the high priest, because Joshua was the high priest in the record of uh, Zechariah chapter three. In the times of the return of the exiles, um, as they came back to Jerusalem, and as they rebuilt the the, uh, the walls of, of Jerusalem and Zechariah is given a vision. And whilst this vision, uh, historically speaking, is the times of Ezra and Nehemiah and the Satan that resisted them, which was the Samaritans recorded in Ezra chapter 4, this is a vision of the changing of the garments of the high priest, who is, as we said, Joshua at this time historically. So he's battling against Satan. So as far as our Lord Jesus Christ Here's Genesis three fifteen, and here's the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And our Lord Jesus Christ is going to be victorious. And we read in verse three. We're only going to take a few uh, um, sections out of this vision. Joshua, we read in verse three of Zechariah chapter three, was clothed with filthy garments. These were the same garments that we read of in, in Leviticus sixteen, the garments with which the high priest officiated on the day of atonement. And he stood before the angel and he answered and spake unto those that stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him, he said, behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. So human nature was going to be uh, removed from our Lord Jesus Christ and he was going to be clothed with a change of raiment. He was going to be given divine nature. And I said, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. And here's Yahweh speaking to the angel, which in this case we know is Michael. We know that from Jude. And set a fair mitre on his head and and clothed him with with garments. And the angel of Yahweh stood by. Now, if you're taking notes, take note of uh, Eureka Volume 1 in the section, The Apocalypse in Zacharias on page 58 of the Logos edition. And you will see there that Brother Thomas Uh, uh, expounds this section of of Zechariah as as a prophecy concerning the changing of our Lord's nature in the changing of the garments from the soiled garments of sacrifice to the new garments that were given him, the robe of righteousness and the garments of salvation. Now, in this, wrote Brother Thomas, we see by the light of the New Testament the change of nature or body in relation to the Christ, whom Paul says... We know henceforth no more after the flesh. He was crucified in flesh of sin. That's the iniquity that's going to be taken away. And then he was condemned in the flesh. But when he rose again, he became spirit body, called by Paul, aiosinis, Spirit of holiness, quoting Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, by the resurrection from the dead. Two other pages I would recommend is page 14 and 15 of Eureka, Volume 1, where Brother Thomas refers us to Psalm 139, verse 15, where the psalmist speaking of Christ wrote, My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, explaining that this is a reference to the Lord's body, which was repaired in the sepulchre for future manifestations. The body, wrote Brother Thomas, was repaired in its being freed from the loathsome disease of death. It was created a spiritual body with all of the embroidery of the spirit. It was sown in corruption, though not permitted to see corruption. It was raised to incorruption. Isaiah had said what was going to be sown into that garden was going to spring forth. And here is a prophecy of the resurrection, the change of nature, the change of garments of Joshua, the high priest. Now in verse 9, and just at the end of verse 9, we read that I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Because the changing of the garments of Joshua, brothers and sisters, was for the purpose of purging away the iniquity of the nation. His iniquity was taken away because he was changed from mortal to immortal. That was not just for himself. It was for us, brothers and sisters, because the iniquity of the land is going to be removed in one day on the day of atonement as a a result of the work of the great high priest. Because it was on that day that he made atonement for all of the sins, all of the iniquity, and all of the transgressions of, of the nation of Israel. But it's also the day of atonement in the year of Jubilee. And we have that in verse 10. And Brother Carter in his book, Prophets After the Exile, writes concerning verse 10, that the day of atonement was followed by the festivals in gardens, the Feast of Tabernacles. The great day of atonement was followed by the Jubilee call for Israel to return to their inheritance and to lead a festival in the kingdom of God. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. In Exodus 23 and verse 16, the Feast of Tabernacles is called the Feast of Harvest of the first fruits, including that of the vine and that of the fig tree, which we have there recorded in verse 10. This is the year of Jubilee. This is the kingdom of God, the Feast of Ingathering, when what, when what was sown in the field is going to spring forth and be harvested in the kingdom of God. This is resurrection language, brothers and sisters. This is the day of atonement in the year of jubilee, a fulfilment of the prophecy of Isaiah 61, foreshadowed in Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 25. Now, where would we go to find a fulfilment in our Lord Jesus Christ of all of these prophecies? Which gospel account is going to give us the answer? And the answer, brothers and sisters, is going to come from John no less. So let's come back to John chapter 20. It's John who records for us the fulfillment of all of those scriptures that we've considered. And so coming back to John chapter 20, let's just uh, become oriented and just look at verse 11 and 12, because what Mary saw when she stooped into the sepulcher, no one else saw. She saw Two angels in verse 12, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty accurate replica of the mercy seat where the blood-stained garments lay of our Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrifice. And at the end, one at the head and the other at the feet, the two cherubim which overshadowed the mercy seat. So this was the actual most holy place brothers and sisters into which the blood of the sacrifice was placed on that mercy seat between the cherubim and that's the picture that mary saw and that's why we read that the blood-stained linen clothes the filthy garments of the high priest were left there that's what leviticus 16 had said that he left those linen clothes in the most holy place and he came out to make the proclamation of liberty to his people, dressed as a bridegroom and as a great high priest in garments of glory and beauty, in the garments of salvation and in the robe of righteousness. So what a fulfillment, brothers and sisters, of those prophecies that we have considered. And look at John's language. Just have a look at John 19, verse 35. John says, the things that I'm recording are true. And he knoweth that he said true. And the reason why I'm telling you this is an accurate record of what was done is because I want you, like me, to believe. Now, the Lord had been put into a deep sleep. We know that from John 19 and verse 30. He bowed his head and gave up the spirit. And we know from verse 34 that his side was opened and elements of blood and water oozed from that side and they were the elements from which the spiritual woman was going to be created, formed out of his side, the side of the man. And now he'd been raised from a deep sleep in John chapter 20 and verse 1. And we're in a garden because John tells us that in John 19 and verse 41, the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new sepulchre wherein was never man yet laid. And we have here a woman that is being directed by the Elohim to the man, and she's called woman in verse 13 and again in verse 15 by the Lord. A woman taken out of man whom Yahweh Elohim had formed by the rib taken out of the man and brought now unto the man. And in verse uh, 15, she thinks this man to be the gardener. Why, that was the vocation of the first Adam, was it not? What's John doing, brothers and sisters and young people? He's taking our mind back to Genesis chapter 2 and the allegory of the formation of the woman in a garden called Eden. And Mary is going to prefigure that woman, representative of the the ecclesia and the bride of the bridegroom, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what John saw, brothers and sisters. And that's what led him to believe. Now, of interest to us are those words in verse 17 that Jesus spoke in his proclamation to his brethren. In verse 17 of John 20, We read that Jesus said to Mary, go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and to your father and to my God and your God. Now, in this setting, brothers and sisters, what could possibly be meant by those words? When does a father of one person become another person's father and someone's God become another person's God? Well, the father of a bridegroom becomes the father of the bride that he loves and has chosen when they're married and she is redeemed. And the God of the high priest becomes the God of the people when he has atoned for their sins and when he has reconciled them to God, my father and your father and my God and your God. This was the the bridegroom who was decked as a priest, brothers and sisters who came out dressed in the garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness to proclaim liberty from the law of sin and death and to bring the bride into a relationship with his father and to atone and reconcile his bride with his God. No wonder, brothers and sisters, the Lord said in that parable of the rich man and Lazarus that we need to hear Moses and the prophets. You remember that the rich man protested and this was the parable Jesus gave six months before Lazarus was raised from the dead. Jesus said resurrection isn't going to convince your brothers and persuade them and convert them to the truth. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. that's where persuasion comes from, brothers and sisters and young people. That's where the conviction comes from that leads to, to, to repentance and conversion. Not the witnessing of miracles, brothers and sisters, but our reading and our hearkening unto the power of the word of God, Moses and the prophets, which we've considered. That's where our certainty is going to come from, brothers and sisters. Not miracles, but black print on white paper. That's why John saw and believed. Peter had done all the analysis, but John came to belief because he knew his Bible. And it's just like us today, brothers and sisters. All of the political analysts who know all of the events of the world in detail can't see what's happening. We're the only ones that can see what's happening. Why, brothers and sisters? Because our eyes have been enlightened by an understanding of the word of God and we can see what's happening. Now, let's look finally at the Um, detail that's given to us of the linen clothes three things are told us about the linen clothes first of all concerning the napkin we're told that it was not lying with the linen clothes and i believe that this is a reference to the two particular stages of the lord's resurrection if you're taking notes in anastasis and on page 20 And repeated also in Eureka Volume 1, page 111, Brother Thomas has given us four stages of the resurrection process. And it starts with the quickening, the Greek word zoopio. The second stage, anastasis, translated resurrection. Third stage, krisis, or judgment. And the final stage, egairo, which means to elevate or raise in status, from mortal to immortal. And they're the stages of our resurrection, being quickened and raised, then being judged and then being elevated from mortal to immortal, that grand and final stage of the resurrection process. Well, our Lord was the first fruit, so he went through the same same stages, except that his judgment went beforehand. And we know that he was vindicated at his death on the cross when the veil of the temple was rent, signifying that he had penetrated beyond the barrier of mortality into the most holy place of mortality. And that's why there was the two stages, the removing of the napkin first, and then he was freed from the linen clothes second. He was raised as a mortal man, and then subsequent to that, he was conferred upon with divine nature. Now, secondly, the napkin was folded or wrapped together. And we've talked about what the napkin was. It was the napkin that was referred to also in the parable of the pounds in Luke 19 and verse 20 when the wicked servant hid his master's money in a napkin because he refused to labour with it. And we know that the curse that Yahweh brought upon man because of sin was that in the the sweat of his face he would eat bread till he returned to the ground, for out of it he was taken. Dust thou art and unto dust thou shalt return. And our Lord, brothers and sisters, his brow brought forth both great drops of blood falling to the ground as sweat, And that crown of thorns which was placed upon his head yielded blood from his brow. And that napkin was a napkin that was soiled because of his labors, brothers and sisters. And blood, sweat, and tears stained that napkin. But that napkin represented a curse. And the old covenant, which was going to be taken away and replaced, in Hebrews chapter 1, the Apostle Paul in verse 10 to 12, Outlines to us how that napkin was going to be folded and put away. The curse was going to be removed. Thou, Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the works of thine hands. The, the heavens and earth which are under the curse will perish, but thou remainest. They will wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture thou shalt fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years fail not. Now they are eternal. And thirdly, we read that it was in a place by itself. Because the napkin related to the head and the linen clothes to the body. And we know that in this figure, brothers and sisters, our Lord is the head. Ephesians 5 verse 23. He's the head of the wife, the head of the ecclesia and savior of the body. So the head and the body were separated because the head was raised independently of the body. Our Lord Jesus Christ was the first fruits, and there was a space placed between his resurrection and ours. And that's why Jesus said to Mary, Don't cling to me or hold on to me because I ascend to the Father. There's going to be a space of 2,000 years between the resurrection of the head, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of his ecclesia who will be raised afterwards at his coming. Now, in conclusion, there's one final thing that the significance of the linen clothes yields, and it's a composite picture of this most amazing event that occurred in the sepulchre where our Lord Jesus Christ was laid. And I'm just going to read to you a, a collage of all of these scriptures that we've considered concerning the linen clothes to put a picture in our minds of this amazing event. And I want you to think about this event, brothers and sisters, and young people, as as an event in which you are involved because the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ has secured our resurrection. And of course, as we know, the resurrection of Yahweh's people, Israel. If you want to close your eyes and, and imagine this, you can. I'll leave it up to you. The time had come. The Father gave the command. My son shall rise. It is not possible that the grave should hold him. The angel was sent from heaven, but he was not sent alone, for two angels met the women at the sepulchre, as Mary saw two angels at the tomb, Gabriel and Michael, most likely, who were given the greatest honour to raise our Lord Jesus Christ from the grave. They represented the power and the name of Yahweh El which were to be seen in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of all saints whose resurrection was secured in his. As intensifying contractions once brought Mary's son to birth, so the convulsions of the earth were were experienced in a huge earthquake as our Lord Jesus Christ was brought forth. And that earthquake rolled back the stone and broke through the seals. The guards, the Roman guards, frozen on, on the spot as the angels enter into that sepulchre the Father and the whole host of heaven intently gazing by the corpse, where lay the beloved Son of the Eternal Father, lifeless, still, bound from head to foot, silent, cold, held in the grips of death, To man, the sight of a dead body signals the awful reality and finality of death. But to God, as Job explained, even if worms destroy this body and the rains consume within, the flesh can be recreated to its full functionality so that sons of God can behold him with their own eyes. But there was more in store for this body, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, the firstborn of the new creation, The angels reach over and remove the napkin that was wrapped over the Lord's head. And having removed it, the face so full of grief and pain appears. A beautiful face, disfigured beyond recognition by the hands of brutish men, pale, eyes shut, in total helplessness and unconsciousness of death. And the angels fold the napkin together and place it neatly, deliberately apart to one side. And with a breath of the angel's mouth into the nostrils of the lifeless corpse, it draws a breath. The eyes blink open. In seconds, the Lord regains consciousness and looking around, realises where he is. And looking up at the angel standing in glory in divine nature, his mind flooded by the past. It's all over and now my father has awakened me. Looking around him in tears of joy streaming from his eyes, he would become aware of the loving tribute of Joseph and Nicodemus that they had paid to him in his burial, smelling the fragrance of their labours. And as the angels extended their commendation to the Lord for his faithful victory over sin and death, perhaps the Lord, perhaps they said, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, thy God, anointeth thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows." And perhaps with a hand upon the Lord's head, the angels bestow him with divine nature and the Lord feels the surge of the spirit transforming into immortality and his garments changed. In a moment, twinkling of an eye, the dead one was raised to incorruption and he was changed. Death swallowed up in victory, the first fruits. Now surely there would be others to follow afterwards. Gone were the wounds from his pierced brow, from his disfigured face, from his scourged back, Only wounds in his hands and feet and side remain to convert his unbelieving people. The beautiful face resembling the face of his father, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, no longer emancipated, tortured, weak and and weary, too weak even to bear his cross. Now he had the vigor of immortality. Yahweh had renewed his strength. He could mount up with wings as eagles and run and not be weary and walk and not faint. He was declared to be the Son of God with power. It seemed only moments ago in his conscious mind that he had uttered those words Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And now from his lips came the balance of the verse Thou hast redeemed me, O Yahweh, ale of truth. And now he had the power to free himself from the grave clothes of mortality. And he shook off the linen clothes like a butterfly emerges from her cocoon and left them there laying behind him. The filthy garments were taken away and he was clothed with a change of raiment, a garment of salvation and a robe of righteousness. And perhaps he heard the words of his father. Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest. They will wax old as the garment. And as a vesture, thou shalt fold them up and they will be changed. Looking at the linen clothes lying there behind him, the Lord could now cry, Death, where is thy sting? Grave, where is thy victory? And perhaps then our Lord heard the voice of his father, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. If the heavenly host burst into song at the birth of Jesus, how much more would the heavens have rung with immortal voices? For when he brought the first begotten from the dead, he saith, and let the angels of God worship him. And perhaps as the angels escorted the Lord out of the tomb, they said, all power is now given unto you in heaven and earth. You have now been made so much better than us, the angels, as by inheritance you have obtained a more excellent name than we. An honoured place now awaits you at the right hand of the throne of your Father. We will remain here to announce your resurrection to the disciples. Go and make yourself known to them. Proclaim liberty, liberty from the law of sin and death, which you have secured for your brethren. And we will return at the appointed day to give the promise of your second coming to your brethren at the time of your ascension. And we will take you up out of their sight into heaven and present you before the ancient of days, your father, that you might receive dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve you. Your dominion will be an everlasting dominion and your kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. All this and much more, no doubt, concealed by the glory of God, For the honour of kings to search out in the significance of the linen clothes. And that universal kingdom and glory and everlasting dominion, brothers and sisters and young people, is the hope of Israel. And the resurrection of Israel, the nucleus of that kingdom, is well and truly in progress. And very soon we will enter into the final scenes which will contain the most devastating tragedy, miraculous deliverance, dramatic conversion and heartwarming reunion the world has ever seen. And it will receive a standing ovation round the world. And you and I, his saints, God willing, will be part of that action. Even so, come, Lord Jesus.